first thing to note is a lot of people get confused. Pref equity doesn't have anything to do with when you hear the term preferred return. Preferred return is part of a waterfall and how, how equity gets paid. Pref equity is a subset of the equity. So typically you have a deal. Let's say you buy a deal for $10 million and uh, you put 70% debt on it. So the first, the first in line to get paid back, the first guy in line is that debt, that first lien holder, Fannie, Freddie, or a bank, right? And then, then the last 30% is equity. So what Pref Equity does is it might put in 10% to get the deal up to an 80% coverage, right? So you got leverage at 70, 10% of Pref Equity gets you up, up to 80%. And the last 20% is the, you know, what's called common equity or junior equity. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Harris, and when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. Today, I have another special guest, Hans Bach. Hans and I have been hanging out for the last, I don't know what it's been, four or five years. Uh, We got a chance to spend uh, different times in different parts of the country and talking about really, you know, things like health, wealth, and happiness, and how do we hack ourselves and how do we, you know, structure our businesses. Hans dives in some some really core principles of investing, how he as a passive investor allows himself certain amounts of freedom, but he's also a GP. He's investing into multi-tenanted cash flowing properties that have some kind of value add strategy. Those are industrial, uh, multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks, multi-tenanted cash flowing properties. He dives into to really first order principles of how he looks and underwrites those deals, not only that he's doing, but he's investing into other people that have those assets as well. This is an incredibly fascinating podcast interview that we get to break down, talk into the details. And he's also going to give you some really, really strategic advice on some books and some podcasts. So listen for that as well. And again, welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles podcast show. And I'm your host, Jake Harris. And now, Hans Bach. Hans Bach, welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles podcast. Uh, I'm excited about this conversation. Uh, We were actually discussing just before we started recording about just how life has changed a little bit and evolved and, and just from being in our proximity and the conversations that we've shared. I know that you and I spent some, well, a lot of different places where we've broken bread or had conversations. Most recently that I remember was in Dallas and we were talking about longevity and living longer and how we can, you know, kind of hack our own, you know, or biohack our systems to, to live and be more successful. We'll dive back into that a little bit later, but I'd love to hear, or at least for the audience, like, let's talk through your background. Who is Hans Bach? You know, how did you become this super awesome investor lender, self-storage, commercial real estate, you know, like super healthy, good looking dude that you are. 
kind of by accident. So I you know, went to college and got a degree in accounting, got a master's in accounting and tax and went and did the whole big four, you know, big four work for nine to 10 years and thought, you know, that was, that was going to be my career. And so in 2010, after seeing what happened in 2008 and what was continuing to happen at that time, I started paying more attention to real estate and started buying rent homes. And mainly, I just really didn't want to be, uh, you know, held back by a W-2. I wanted to be able to provide, you know, for myself. And I saw many people get laid off back then and it, and it scared me. So I started buying rent houses in 2008. And obviously, it was a great time to buy rent houses. Uh, everything was like $75,000 for a 3-2 brick built in 2000 in Dallas. You know, it was crazy. And uh, bought a few there. And then in the, I guess in 2009 or 2010, I started getting more interested in, in multifamily investing, which is a much easier way to scale. I took a risk at that point in my life. You know, I was making a good salary at the time for my age. And uh, I met a guy in a, uh, in a mentor group that, that I was part of there in Dallas. And we made a kind of a partnership where I was going uh, to quit, go join him. He owned about six to 700 units at the time. And the goal was to, uh, for me to fix his accounting, which was a disaster and which probably should have been my first first cue of, of, of what was to come. Uh, and he was going to mentor me in multifamily. So that was the deal, right? So I, I give up a nice high paying job at a big four firm, six figure job and go make basically nothing with him sitting on, on site at a class C apartment in West Fort Worth. So we started doing that, fixed his accounting, cashed out my 401k so I could invest in in uh, his next deal, because I, I was going to be, I was also a GP in his next deal, a very small percentage. I had no control. That was another learning point for me is that I didn't have control, but I was part of the GP. And um, so I had to cash out my IRA to, uh, to be able to invest in my own deal. It's just the rules. And so at the time, I put the probably that was half my net worth was in these two deals at the time. Uh, obviously, I wasn't accredited or anything like that. Well, one of the deals, the bigger one, 208 unit deal in East Dallas, well, Central East Dallas, we bought it for 20 a door, all in for 29 a door. He over rehabbed it and then uh, hired uh, the management company he was using was wasn't really a company. It was a lady with a, with a couple of employees. She was not managing it correctly. This is obviously a tough demographic and a tough time to manage these kind of deals. So myself and another passive investor that was getting worried about the trajectory of the deal, we started, you know, asking him, hey, we have this, we know this management company, they have a really good reputation, let's hire them. Long story short, he basically just uh, refused to, wanted to stay with the lady he was using. Side story, he's now married to that lady and they were having an affair at the time. So that kind of answered it. I didn't figure all that out until years later, but that was the reason that was going to be my question. I was like, you know, cause I was like, man, there's usually always some kind of reason why. Yep. Yep. I mean, he, he knew she wasn't managing it correctly. He had to have known he anyway. And so, um, she was managing other things. hundred <laughs> percent, yes. not the property. That's for sure. And, uh, so myself and this other passive investor, Basically, long story short, after a bunch of meetings and things like that, all the other passive investors, minus one guy, so it was almost unanimous, voted for us to kick him out of the GP spot uh, and take over control of the deal. Yeah, he didn't lose his compensation, but he lost control. And we hired the management company that we were been begging him to hire. She helped us turn the deal around in about a year or so. And we sold it and made like a I don't know, over a three-year period, maybe a 24% return or so for the investors. Considering we started behind an eight ball, it was, it was pretty good. And so we, we sold the deal uh, for what was a record price of 37K a unit <laughs> at the time in that market, right? And this was like 2012. So we thought, yeah, this is great. You know, we did great. And so that 
that passive investor that I teamed up with on that deal um, is now my business partner. So it was a little, it really was by accident. I wouldn't by accident on real estate, but it was by accident that I met him and started my syndication business with him. And so the, the, this, this uh, group of investors were happy that we basically saved their principal, made them a little bit of money. And they asked us if we were ever going to do anything again. And that's when our you know, wheels started turning and we, we started uh, doing small things. We started out really small, like a $1.25 million pr- preferred equity position. And then we did a $3 million preferred equity position. And then we got into mobile home parks and self-storage and more multifamily, of course. And it just kind of uh, slowly went from there. And so now, you know, we've done probably 14 to 15 deals, somewhere between 50 to 60 million in equity, right? Uh, maybe over 60 million in equity now because we just closed two more. You know, we're not huge, but we like to do two to three deals if we can a year. Uh, there's been years where we've done none, where we, because we're very conservative and we have trouble finding deals that meet our parameters. So we would rather, you know, we're very careful. So I, we would much rather uh, just not take the risk uh, with our investors' money than, than to do a deal and have it go bad on us. So I'm sure we've missed out on opportunities over the last five to six years because I was saying five years ago that, you know, cap rates can't go any lower in multifamily. And of course they did. So, um, but anyway, we're, we're, we're happy with what we've done. We've got a great group of investors and, and we just kind of hit singles and doubles. That's what we look for. We don't want to, uh, our goal is not to lose money. Yeah. I think that's a great, great principle. So you, you say you went to college, uh, I where, did. Where, I went where, to A&M. Okay. Texas A&M. Yeah. I live here in Austin. So I live here in enemy territory. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a big thing in Texas. Like, it man, <laughs> I, I, I first went down there. I got to say it was probably seven, eight years ago. And, uh, we, my, my business partner and I went to one of those like piano bars where like they have the dueling pianos Yeah, and they and, play the school fight songs, right? <laughs> yeah, and not only that, but like people pay to, to do a song or a recommendation, or they could write a thing up on the board. And literally all it was, was people paying to write their next, like, you know, if it was Reckham <laughs> tech or, you yeah. know, hook em horns or like over on the top of every single one. And like, it was That's like right. the entire <laughs> thing was just about doing your, your different uh, college, uh, thing back and forth, back and forth over the entire night as they're playing, you know, different fight songs or different slogans. And so I was just like, this is different. This is not, yeah, well, I'm not here. Yeah. I'm not part of this stuff or not familiar <laughs> with this. So undergrad and grad school at Texas A&M. Are you from Texas? I am. I am from Northwest of San Antonio. You know, your listeners have ever heard of the area of Texas called the Hill Country. I'm from that area of Texas, which is kind of northwest of San Antonio. It's west of Austin. It's a real pretty area of Texas. It's not big hills, but they're, you know, it's rolling terrain and real pretty. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a quaint area to grow up. And I was lucky. I grew up on a hundred acres on the, out in the hill country and in, in, in the, uh, in the country. So raised, went to a very small school. I think there was 88 in my graduating class. Um, you know, 400. In the entire high school, you know, uh, the town has 900. So uh, it's very small, very small. So A&M was, was massive and a bit of a change for me. But I was, I had no choice. I was going to be an Aggie. My dad went there. It was, it was, you know, go there. He disowned me pretty much. So especially if I went to Texas. So. Oh, that's interesting. So you, did you always know you wanted to kind of go into accounting? Did, is it, was it business? Like what were, what did your dad do? And then what kind of led, obviously he wanted you to, to go be an Aggie. Um, but what did he do? And then how did that lead you into, or how'd you end up in accounting? Yeah. So, um, my dad was an attorney. He was like a, a transactional corporate attorney work, uh, had his work with his own firm for a while, very small firm in, in San Antonio, not one of the big ones. And then went and was the chief counsel for Baptist Memorial Hospital System for a number of years there in San Antonio, where he finished out his career. And so I, of course, being an attorney was always on my mind. Uh, so I went to A&M, but I, I wasn't unequivocal about it. I wasn't sure. So back then, I, apparently you can't do this now, at least not at A&M. Uh, 
you can't do, I did general studies for 60 hours until they, they said, you have to pick a major. <laughs> so I was literally general studies for 60 hours. And, um, and then, you know, honestly, I was like, okay, I'm not doing engineering. I'm not smart enough for that. And, uh, I don't, my math's just not, I'm not good enough in math. I got my one C in college was calculus. And I, I was like, okay, I'm not going to be an engineer. Let's just move on here. Um, got and decided, oh, I should go to business school. Right. And so if you're going to business school, what is, what is the most practical, rational major finance or accounting, right? I mean, marketing and management are, are decent majors, but you can't do as much with them. And with finance and accounting, you kind of have a back, you know, like a backbone where you could kind of choose to do a lot of different things. So I, I chose accounting. I wish I would have chose finance, you know, for any of the young listeners there that are listening now, I would, I would prefer to have chose uh, finance for the, what I do now, but accounting has definitely helped. I mean, you got to be able to read a P and L to, to, to run a real estate business of any type. So, so I uh, chose accounting and, and then just chose tax because audit looked awful. It was, you know, one of those things. And I, you know, it wasn't real well thought out. I'll have to admit, I didn't go into college with these exact goals of doing X, Y, and Z. But it, it's worked out because I chose a major that kind of has, you know, is, is good for business. Is basically accounting. So I, I do recommend accounting for those that are looking to get into real estate. You need to have some sort of accounting background, if not a major in it. But it, I would go finance with an accounting, maybe minor or something if I was going into real estate again. So the accounting, you know, grad school, you know, launched you into doing one of the big four kind of firms. Did you, and so when you go out and do that, what is that you stay there, you know, do you go other parts of the country? And then uh, obviously, you know, it sounds like it was a, a pretty, I'd say a gig, good gig from a, a kid from a small town of 900 to, you know, a path to making six figures. What is that kind of big four accounting? Uh, what was that experience for you? Um, it was good experience. I mean, you know, I, it was, I came out of college at a time where jobs were in high demand. This is like early 2000, late nineties, early two thousands time period. And, um, so I had my pick of the big four and I just picked the one that was the highest offer. I think, I mean, all of $42,000 a year with a master's. I mean, that was, that was just the pay back then. And, uh, but it was really good because it, you know, it, you, you're around a lot of smart people. Uh, you, you learn how to, uh, interact and, and, uh, you learn strategy and things like that. I was in state tax consulting. So what I was doing, I wasn't doing returns. I was, doing like legal memos explaining state tax nexus in all 50 states, stuff like that. So it was more about legal restructuring to take advantage of state tax loopholes in the US. And and so we I did a lot of writing. It was almost law-like in a way, except you can't practice law as an accountant. So did that for a few years, got good experience and you know, it got me a base under me and uh to understand the world honestly working for a big firm like that it just you're you're 22 you don't know you don't know anything so you know spending eight to ten years in a firm like that will really uh you know help you learn the world and learn how to interact with people and in business and etc cetera, etc cetera. uh but the last three years i was there i i didn't love accounting never did and uh, got into their management consulting group i actually took a uh, demotion to go into the management consulting group because I just didn't want to do uh, accounting anymore. It's, it's taxes. So I got into, um, of all things, management consulting on the HR function, trying to get the HR function to the C table, right? That was the idea. And it's, it's a huge industry now, uh, massive industry. But it, so it was really interesting going from accounting to more of the soft skills, consulting, flying around the country, like in, when I was in uh, the accounting side, I didn't travel at all. I was you know, every day in the office there in Dallas. But then once I went to the management consulting side, it was probably 80 to 100% travel to various sites wherever our, our client was. So that was a great experience. Again, though, I wouldn't want to do that for 10 years. That's a lot of, you know, some people love it, but you get burned out pretty quick traveling 100% like that. But it, again, it, it it really gave me a more well-rounded experience at, at Pricewaterhouse than it would have been if I would have just stayed in tax. 
for sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, Price Waterhouse has, you know, the, some of the, you know, top clients in the world, you know, and so, and not only the U S but, and so they're, you know, uh, you know, sending you a little bit uh, of everywhere. So you went from state tax, you know, kind of consulting and, you know, hacking the legal systems of, of, you know, and, and really then that's what is, I think one of the biggest aha moments for me, uh, in my life and being around smart people like you and, and being part of other mastermind groups is they're playing a different game. Like you're just not aware of that. Like tax code is law. It's an interpretation. And so and people interpret it in different ways. And so like when I first started my first business and I'm 18, you know, 19 years old and you're just like, Oh, you just get a conservative accountant and that's the way it is. And it's like, no, that's not actually the way it is. And the, the very wealthy are, are saying, no, how can we interpret this to our benefit? Because we're trying to, within the laws, keep as much tax, you know, or income as possible. And that's what our goal is. And so, and then it was like, oh, wow, I didn't even know this game existed. And then obviously you getting that experience at 22 years old to, you know, uh, you know, look at the world that way. I think that's so, so incredibly valuable. You did, you didn't love accounting. You actually decided to go into HR, which a lot of people also, or you know, say management consulting HR from the accounting firm. But then, like, what a lot, you know, transitioned you from that? You're willing to leave a a very nice, you know, corporate type gig to get into real estate. Well. I, it got, I mean, I got started because I joined a mentor group back in 05 in Houston my, that my brother had, and my dad joined as well. Didn't do anything with the group for two years, but in 07, they opened up an office in Dallas and I started going to their meetings and, and you know, listening to the pitches and, you know, and um, it made sense, you know, buying a rent house and putting 20K down and getting $300 a month cash flow. Just do the math. It's pretty good. And to use it, you know, when, when I learned how to use leverage, as you know, obviously it's, it's, that's the, it's a game changer in real estate. It's the leverage. And, um, so it just made sense to me. I, I you know, luckily I knew enough about numbers and cause I had an accounting background that, okay, this, this all is pretty easy. makes sense. I can do this. I can buy a rent house. And so I started buying, I bought one. And once you get past that first one, it gets so much easier. And, and I was lucky. This was during the downturn. So I was buying foreclosed homes. Um, you know, I didn't buy that many. I bought like seven-ish over the course of my time uh, because then I transitioned everything into multi multifamily. But um, so when I started buying the rent houses, I saw the appeal and, and I kept going to the meetings at this mentor group. And obviously the next step was multifamily. And that made, you know, then you could really make big money, right? That's, that was the idea. And that's how I met this guy that I partnered with. And, and, uh, you know, it was a hard decision to quit PDBC. I remember the day I quit, I was like, what am I doing? You know, I'm leaving a, a really nice job with really good coworkers, really good benefits to go make less than half of what I was making. And I literally sat on site at a class C apartment in West Fort Worth, which also was an eye opening experience. <laughs> and it taught me the world in a different way. But it was really good for me. And, you know, I, I, I was really nervous. And, and I guess what made me finally do it is I didn't want to look back 10 years from then, which is now or even a couple of years ago, and regret not taking that chance. I didn't want to, you know, make senior manager at PwC and then partner and, and be, you know, have my golden handcuffs because that really was what happens when you get to those levels and, you know, if you're close to making partner at those firms, you don't leave because once you make partner, you got a pension for life. So, uh, I just wasn't ready to commit that a level of, I didn't have that level of commitment towards accounting or having a job. Uh, and I wanted to have a life and I could see that real estate could provide that. And you don't, you know, you can make very good money in real estate, but not, you're not working. 60, 70 hours a week, every week, like most of those big four uh, employees do. 
So it's all those factors together made me quit and take the leap. So, and, and, and really, uh, what I find is so interesting about that is you, you're talking about a lot of things has to do with mindset, you know, has to do with, you know, not having regret or taking this risk. And, and maybe this is a calculated risk of that. Is there something that, you know, just being part of that, that mentor group, is there books that you're reading? Is there people that have, you know, maybe you've seen be successful in that area that allowed you to kind of hedge 51% or, you know, it sounds like it was not like a hundred percent guns, you know, blazing, like, let's go do it. It was more like I'm 51 or 50.5. I'm going to do it. And I'm a little reluctant to do it. So it was like, you know, and obviously that's, I think, and the reason I say that is like, I feel like so many people are like 40% there or 30% there. And they don't get to that action step of actually going, okay, I'm leaving corporate job. I'm leaving to take this risk. And so, and that's why I gonna say, if you can maybe kind of talk to your mindset, your thought process, or, you know, what was it around that time period that uh, allowed you to kind of take those action steps? Yeah, I would say that the number one factor was the was the uh, mentor group I was a member of. Getting around a lot of people that had those kind of mindsets. Not not all of them were going to be successful, and there's a lot of flops in that group, as as you can imagine. But the, overall, the group had that mentality, and the and the guy that led it um, had that mentality and about growing and reading and and understanding cash flow and and um, it just kind of pushed. You know, I got around people now, obviously, you and I are a member of a few organizations where we're around other guys that we think we're doing great. And then we get in the room and we're like, okay, I need to go back and reset here. I'm not doing as good as I thought I was. So, right. So we, you want to be the dumbest guy in the room. And um, in, in that mentor group, it's just there was a lot of people that were growing and learning and trying to improve their lives and, and, and uh, give themselves more time away so they're not you know, just working for somebody else. And so that, that was definitely the first one. And then of course I read rich dad, poor dad, and I know it's cliche, but everyone that gets started in real estate, you need to read that. It is a, uh, eye-opening book. It's simple to read. And for someone that doesn't know the first thing about cash flowing real estate, it's just, it's, uh, enlightening is what I have to say. It was just really great. You know, and then I read the, all the other ones, you know, like, Oh, uh, what are they called? Um, Oh gosh, there's a couple other big ones that are around that time period that everyone was reading. I don't remember. It escapes me. It'll come back to me. But it was really that book and the mentor group that that pushed me to to do that. And then me just thinking, I don't want to have a regret. Um, I you know I realize even then I realized my mortality, and we've only got so much time on this earth, and I didn't. I just didn't want to feel like I uh, wasted it or regretted not at least giving a shot because I could always go back and get a job. That was my thought process. So if this fails, which it damn near did, almost did, as you heard from my story, because uh, if that would have gone bad, that would have been all my money. Then I can always just go get a job. I, I left on good terms. They would have hired me right back. So I that part, kind of having that that safety net there, knowing I could get the job back was, uh, was definitely a kick in the pants and allowed me to, to take that step. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. 
Yeah. And that's, I like the way that you kind of, you know, being around you, you're always systematically approaching things from first order kind of principles. And, and even if it wasn't proactive as far as from, hey, I'm going to go get in finance. But obviously, when you kind of sat down and you had, here's the, the path in front of you, business, finance, accounting, you know, kind of things. Oh, this seems like a, a, a likely path. But and it kind of layers into, you know, uh, uh, something that I've known you for is you say you said earlier conservative in your your underwriting or your approach to investing. I think it's a very pragmatic way, and I think it's a very disciplined way in which you invest. And I'm going to tell you this, you know, I don't know, we, we haven't shared this, but like I didn't buy anything for like 20 months, and it was the longest period in which I had ever not bought anything in 20 years of investing. And it was not for lack of trying. It was just, I kept getting outbid uh, and we got, got to our numbers. We sharpened our pencil a little bit more and just, we couldn't get to the numbers of that, what people were doing over the last couple of years. And it was just like, I don't know how you make money on that. At least where the way I do stuff and my underwriting was, I don't know that I can make money on that. My systems are not as good or my cost of capital is too expensive or whatever it was, but I don't know. And I'd sit down next to you and like you and I would share these war stories of like, now this makes how sense. How are they doing it? <laughs> yeah. How does this make sense? Like, I don't understand. So I, I wanted to dive into a little bit of like, what is your investment approach, you know, now? And then obviously you've closed on a few things recently and, and, you know, like, so how is that evolution of you looking from partnering up with a guy that was just had units fixing some other problems. And then obviously you, you went and you said you went to some pref equity and then some mobile homes. And so like, what is your investment criteria, your due diligence look like now? And then like, what are the asset types that you find that you kind of hit those, those matrix or those investment thesis that you're kind of uh, looking for? Yep. So we concentrate on multi-tenant cash flowing real estate. You know, um, we've, I, I love industrial, thought about doing it, but I don't know the first thing about it. I'm invested in it separately. But for what we do, it's we want multi-tenant. So that's like mobile home parks, self-storage, obviously multifamily, asset types like that. And we are looking for, and everyone says this nowadays, especially, you know, but they don't really know what the meaning is, value, a true value add. There has to be a value add and not broker speak value add because it's every deal that comes out has value add, right? But there has to be a very, very clear path to forcing equity into the property day one. So the day I take over that property, not literally day one, but the day I take over that property, I can do X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to create myself a margin of safety in by forcing equity into the deal by raising rents, reducing expenses doing upgrades, fixing up the curb appeal, whatever that may be. And so we that is probably one of the biggest reasons we haven't done a lot of, we didn't do a lot of deals over the last few years is because we didn't see the value add component that other people were somehow penciling into these spreadsheets. I think they just assumed rents were going to the sky. I We did not, right? So if there's no value add and you, know, and you buy a deal at retail, and you can you don't force any equity and we have a dip in the market which may be coming or is coming or is here a lot of people are going to get caught with their pants down and so that's why we were really careful so value add cash flowing real estate lower risk so prep equity is kind of a subset of that right so it's not straight equity it's it's preferred equity so it's a capped return but also invested in multifamily, but it's a capture turn, but you sit above all the other equity. In other words, you get paid first, you get your money back first. So in return for a lower, uh, lower return, you get basically a, uh, a capture turn, a, a lower risk deal is, is basically what's happening. And so we love that. Our investors love that. Now we don't do that right now because in an inflationary environment, I don't like fixed returns. We want to be straight equity. Which is, you know, for instance, we just bought a self, uh, a vacant retail center in South Atlanta, and we're going to convert it to climate control self storage. So it's not pure development, but it's our first foray into development, and we like it because of the 
of the deep value add component to it. So, and, you know, typically what we do is we partner with other owner operators. We find the deal, possibly, you know, bring all the money for the deal, co-asset manage, co-GP it. But then we'll partner with like a self-storage group out of Atlanta that we know well that is going to run the day-to-day because that's what they do. So that's that's typically how we operate. And we're just looking for, for you know, singles and doubles. And, you know, we want to get to 8% plus cash on cash within year three. I mean, that's kind of the general goal. But, you know, it's uh, we're opportunistic. We buy, we'll buy all over the country. It just depends on the deal. I'd love you to explain because I, I know this is, I know what pref equity is, but I feel like a lot of listeners maybe don't understand that. So if you can kind of explain, you know, regular equity, pref equity, kind of the capital stack a little bit. And then obviously you said you did some of that early in your career. You invested in what that means by capped, you know, kind of returns and, and explain that just to, to illustrate. Happy to. First thing to note is a lot of people get confused. Pref equity doesn't have anything to do with when you hear the term preferred return. Preferred return is part of a waterfall and how, how equity gets paid. Pref equity is a subset of the equity. So typically you have a deal. Let's say you buy a deal for $10 million and uh, you put 70% debt on it. So the first, the first in line to get paid back, the first guy in line is that debt, that first lien holder, Fannie, Freddie, or a bank, right? And then, then the last 30% is equity. So what Pref Equity does is it might put in 10% to get the deal up to an 80% coverage, right? So you've got leverage at 70, 10% of Pref Equity gets you up, up to 80%. And the last 20% is the, you know, what's called common equity or junior equity. So Pref Equity is just part of equity. It's just sitting ahead of that other 20%. So the beauty of it is, is that you get, they would have to lose all 20% of the 20% of equity would have to lose uh, all their money before you would get hurt. So you're protected. And the payoff, the, I guess the payback for that is you have a lower return. You know, common equity might make 17, 18 IRR, assuming the deal goes as projected. We might only make 12% flat, no matter how well the deal does. So pref equity is, is a great tool if you just want, you know, mailbox money and low risk. Uh, it's a great tool for syndicators because if you if your if your return on your deal is say projected at 17% IRR and you're able to acquire pref equity at 12, what you're basically doing is as long as your preferred equity return is less than the overall project return, you're juicing the returns or helping the returns of the common equity and giving them higher returns by using us because we're capped. So it's it's a win-win in the right situation. And uh, we, we, we've done four pref equity deals uh, and have really enjoyed it. It's uh, been, been, a, been a great run. We're not doing it now because of inflation. I think most of your un- readers probably, or listeners probably understand that is if you have a capped return in an inflationary environment, you might not make it, be making any money. So, um, you know, 12% pref right now, I, don't, I think all day long, inflation ain't. 8% or whatever they say it is, it's probably closer to 12 to 15. So if it's 12 and you have 12% return, you're basically just breaking even. You're just, you know, so that's why we have shied away from PREF right now in an inflationary environment, but we will be jump right back in once things settle down again. Yeah. So that's, I mean, it, it, to, 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 you know, dumb guys like, like me, as far as you get a cut in line, as far as what you're doing he's like i'm going to do this i'm willing to lose out on some of the top end returns but i'm my money gets to cut in line so if there's only uh eleven dollars uh available and we get the first 10 of that the 11th dollar goes to the other guys and so we get our money first in that preferred priority of that waterfall and so you know like you said senior lender is 70 percent 30 percent is equity but what you're saying of that 30 is the 10 percent is pref equity saying we get the first ten dollars of that and so if there's only 11 or 12 we get our 11 we get 10 and then we're capped and so the you know you would have a 12 percent return you know so that all 11 dollars would go to us 
And then everyone else gets and splits up the remaining portions of that. And so then sorry, other people, um, if the deal goes bad, obviously it goes good and it does 30% IRRs great for them, you know, because they get a higher return. We only had to be paid out 12%. And so, you know, really when you're looking at, you know, your investment thesis kind of let what I'm you know hearing at least is, and we just don't want to lose money. That's it. I mean, it's hundred percent, right? So what's, there's an example, right? If you invest a hundred thousand and you lose 25, you have to make a 33% return on the remaining 75K to get back to where you started. And if you lost half of it, you have to make a hundred percent return on the remaining 50K. So it, there's a huge amount of value in just not losing money. Well, that's, that's Warren Buffett says, you know, rule number one is don't lose money. Rule, rule number two is see rule number one. Exactly. Exactly. So we definitely follow that for sure. And we've missed some home runs. Uh, because we were too conservative in our underwriting and didn't do a deal when we should have. But, you know, all we can do is base our decisions on the information we had at that time. And so I don't really look back on that and, and, and regret anything because I feel our decisions based on the information we had were, were, um, were proper and, and reflected uh, basically our, our job of, of protecting investors' money. We made that decision based on that. So. I wouldn't change any of them uh, based on that information that I had at the time. So you mentioned a little bit earlier that maybe there's a recession. Maybe we're already in a recession. Maybe there's a recession coming up. And uh, so what are you doing differently right now? Or are you doing anything differently as a, you know, the potential shakiness of, of um, the market uh, and you're underwriting the way that you're investing capital now. Yeah, so you know we're still we we're still sticking by what we do in terms of um, value add things. Um, for instance, we just invested in a in a multifamily deal that is very very niche or niche. I don't know how you say that word. Um, I've said it both ways. I don't know that anybody's <laughs> ever corrected me, and so yeah. I say it like whatever. Niche, Nobody knows niche. every time yeah. I ask. And it's very specific in that it's it's based on it's a property tax abatement partnerships that you have with the housing authorities in in the state of Texas, and so you're creating uh, a margin for safety day one, and and uh, it's eight percent cash on cash day one kind of situation. So that kind of stuff is the stuff we're looking at on a personal level. I'm being very careful about what I invest in, and it has to has to have like a, you know I love affordability, so mobile homes tax abated portfolio, multifamily, stuff like that makes makes a lot of sense to me right now. You know, the, the only big change I have to say is I am just being more careful about where I'm investing my own money, you know, other with other GPs. And I am trying to stack up a little bit more cash than I would uh, it would otherwise to to get ready for in case you know we do have a downturn and we can go out and buy a bunch of multifamily assets, which is what we would love to happen, honestly. Uh, don't know if it will, but, um, you know, I haven't changed anything drastically other than just being even more careful than I was and being, making sure that the deals I am investing in are with strong sponsors with great track records and the investment thesis is, uh, affordability, value add cash flow. That's what I want to see. So why do you like the multi-tenanted, you know, space? Well, you can argue that it's lower risk because you, you know, if you have a triple net deal and, and, uh, the tenant, which is one tenant walks or breaks the lease, you're suddenly a hundred percent vacant with multifamily. Obviously, you know, you, you might have a hundred tenants and a hundred unit property and one or two default. You're not, you're not going to be in trouble. So it, it, it basically is just, it's lower risk in that respect. In, in my opinion, we like that better. And, and there's, there's more room to, raise rents and make improvements to the NOI in, in a situation like that when other than if you're locked into a, a large commercial property and you only have one or two or three tenants, it's much harder to move the needle there. Not saying those aren't good because I actually invested in some of that kind of stuff, but not I don't do it personally. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. There's a couple of things. Um, I know we're, we're running closer to time and of, of 
wrapping up the show. Um, I had a couple questions that I wanted to ask you. And, and the first one is about what investment or, or you know, use of your money that has given you the greatest return of investment for your freedom? I would have to say, I mean, that's, I have to pick one. <laughs> you can, you know what? You can make whatever you want. Can I name you can, yeah. you can pick some of these groups. Yeah. I'm going to call, I'm going to say it right now. Masterminds. Okay. Yes. It, yes. Joining some masterminds, like the one we're in and then I'm, I'm in another one and they're not cheap, but just getting around people like you and, and people that push you and getting access to stuff and deals that I would never have seen otherwise, that has given me the most freedom because that has allowed me to put my money into stuff where I don't have to get out of bed in the morning if I don't want to, because I'm still going to get the same check coming in because I'm investing in these, in these deals that have been vetted by really smart people. And um, so that if I had to pick one, it would be that, you know, honestly, this is going to sound stupid, but I always like I grew up in the country and we cleaned our own house. And when my wife and I finally hired a, hired a house cleaners about a year or two ago, I was like, holy crap, I should have done this 10 years ago. It's just it's a huge time saver. And it gives you a level like you walk in and the house is clean. You're like, ah, and it's just I don't know. It 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 creates a sense of freedom for sure for me to have that done. Um, I should have done that years ago, but I'm cheap. Remember, I am a CPA. So. <laughs> well, which is interesting because I, I feel like that's exactly the same thing. It's like we have cleaners come in and they do like all the deep cleaning stuff that you like, you always want to do, you know, you always want to do and they get in. I have three kids. And so like two of them are boys and they're young boys. And so they're probably pissing on something or, you know, breaking <laughs> something or there's food tucked behind somewhere. And so it's just like, man, it is, it is awesome. And, and like you said, just freeing you up to even think or do more, more things. I actually want to pull back the first point that you talked about, about passively investing that you're investing into these other deals. So like you're a GP, a sponsor, you're finding out and doing deals yourself, but you're also investing into other people's deals that is helping you to kind of return it, um, you know, get a return on, on your capital. And so, and why I think that's, that's very important, especially, especially for the audience is like, there's a lot of high income earner people that are like talking, listening to the show. They're making a million bucks a year being a doctor. They don't actually have the time to do some of the things that you do as far as being a, a GP or sponsor of the deal. Because now it's like they would be starting over like they're in a, uh, you know, somebody that's doing brain surgery, working 60, 80 hours a week, doesn't have a whole lot of time to go sit at a C-class apartment and learn what it's like to manage those things. And it's a very ineffective use of their time because of what they're, they're doing is they're making so much more money on a per hour basis. So maybe talk me through like you investing into those deals as an LP, a limited partner, like how has that transition been? Have you always done that? What, you know, you know, that process and, and your mindset has been for you as investing into other people's deals. I've been doing it for a long time, probably the last six to 10 years or so. And I love doing it. Actually, I like looking at deals and vetting sponsors and vetting other people's deals and reading business plans and things like that. It's actually, it's kind of probably one of my superpowers, I guess, is to, is to look at other people's deals and ask questions and vet them. So I, I enjoy it one and two, it allows me, I, I don't have enough deals to invest my own money unless I, you know, I just don't, I want to be able to spread my money out. So I don't want to put all my money into one into one of my deals only uh it's just not diversified enough and so being able to invest with other gps and create and get into asset classes that i don't know as long as i vet them properly i'm trusting the jockey and um you know it's it's a great way to diversify but the key the key is to is to be able to learn how to read a business plan and how to vet a another sponsor and their track record. That's huge. It's a huge thing. In fact, I, I created, I have a 
presentation slash training on it that I've given it probably five to 10 times now at various meetups and meetings um, about what to look for in a passive investment. So it's a kind of a side hobby of mine. I like it. And, um, you know, at some point I may just want to invest my own money. So it'll serve me well to do that. So, uh, mainly it's the diversity. That's, that's, I think the, the biggest thing is because I can't, I can't go do industrial and retail and self storage and multifamily and mobile home parks, you know, and RV parks. You know, I just, you can't, you can't know everything. So you got to find people you trust. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense is, is I see so many people that, think they need to go own it or be the jockey, you know, Hey, I'm super smart. So I need to go be the jockey on that triple net, you know, deal that net lease, you know, investment and be like, I just, you know, I don't think so. And obviously when you're thinking of this, like you're trying to get more freedom, you don't actually want a new job. You know, you don't want another job like managing. And obviously as a GP, think people, I think, I think it's a much more glamorous position than it is. It's not glamorous. <laughs> Just so everybody knows. <laughs> There's a lot of like BS that you got to put up with all the time. And I don't care if it's what it is, you know, you know, nothing is mailbox money as other than my passive investments like those, I was like, yeah, I don't do anything. I don't answer the phone. I just get a check. They send me the money. Like that's pretty passive to me as a GP and running deals, not passive, not passive at all. Yeah. Right. No, it's your job. It's, it's your job. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's the, it's investing with other GPs is, is the way I make my passive, you know, my money. And that's what, you know, keeps, it's kind of like the safety net over here while I go do my GP and make, trying to make bigger money, obviously, but I've got this safety net of cash flow coming in on a monthly or quarterly basis that uh, gives me, you know, helps me sleep at night. So, I mean, I feel like I could just keep talking to you for, for hours and hours. Um, I wanted to kind of dive into some things that create some tactics for people. And, and usually that is, you know, book recommendations or a podcast recommendation or something that has been, you know, very, inordinately valuable to you. Um, and so that could be a book that you've gifted the most to someone or, you know, uh, a reference of some podcast where you're just like, man, these guys are amazing. Like every time it's like, I, I get a, a huge return on it, on that investment. So a uh, recommendation for some people to take some, some, some tactical items of some recommendations. Uh, and then we'll wrap up with, you know, how people can find you. Maybe they can try to get on that presentation of how to invest a, a sponsor or passive investment, or of course, you know, some of the things that you're investing into as well. Sure. So, you know, in terms of books, uh, I'm a big Ayn Rand fan. So I'd rec always recommend her books. You know, it's not directly related to business or real estate, but it is a, it, it is about as applicable as it's going to get in terms of living a, a flourishing full life. That's what it's about. So I, I highly recommend Ayn Rand. My favorite book recently that I, I've gifted the most is called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. He, Naval Ravikant was a co-founder, I believe, of AngelList. Uh, he's a VC guy, philosopher. It's, it's, a, it's a book that's basically put together by somebody else where they took all his blogs, tweets, Post on on various social media platforms, podcasts that he's been on, and put it together, and and it's all his. I, I think they even got a word for it, Nabalisms or something. So all of his wit, he is very wise, and it's puts together all of his thoughts on on basically health, uh, wealth, and happiness, and uh, and how he thinks about those things. So again, not blocking and tackling on how to buy a rent house, but that is what I gifted my. Uh, my nephew who just graduated high school and I'm going to send it, I'm going to give it to every one of my nephews when they graduate high school. So I wish I would have read, I mean, I don't think it was around obviously when I, when I graduated, but it, it, uh, I think it is a great place to start in terms of how to view your life and, and to, to think bigger. And, um, so I, I highly recommend that book, um, by far right now, it's my favorite book that I read recently. Podcasts. I, I listen to quite a few, I would say, 
I was trying to pull up a couple here that I have on my phone. I listen to like the Tim Ferriss show, I think is a great show because it's very, it has a lot of very variety. Um, the lifestyle investor, uh, by Justin Donald. Justin is a friend of mine. So I, um, maybe I'm biased, but I don't think I am. He's gotten really popular. He, uh, it's a, it's a great show and, um, a member of his mastermind and he has a lot of top notch guests in it. It's about investing passively. So you can have your, you can create your own lifestyle. That's where that comes from. So I highly recommend that podcast. And then maybe another one I listened to, uh, that is not quote unquote business related called the knowledge project. And, um, it is, it's a great podcast because it'll have anybody on there from talking business to, uh, views on happiness or, uh, how to think more strategically, or, I mean, it, it is a, it, it's basically you're, they're interviewing a lot of not just academics, but just really smart people about how they live their lives. And, um, I just find, I find it fascinating. And I think it's important for anyone, you know, that's that, uh, to not pigeonhole yourself into one type of podcast, be a little bit more well-rounded and listen to some different thoughts and, and it'll make you a better, better investor, uh, and better and better person, honestly. Um, so those are my favorite ones right now that I listen to. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I, I love Tim Ferriss for part of that reason as well. And, and even to that, you know, I have not listened to the knowledge, uh, project, but it's just like sometimes random people that you would probably never listen to if it hadn't been on that kind of like a type of that platform that you hear something and, maybe causes you to question your own confirmation bias, or it's just causes you to see something the way they're thinking is you, it, you know, like solidifies something of your own current problems that you're working on. And you'd be like, oh, that could work, you know, like, Oh wow. And it's like taking things from a different angle and, you know, and it's just like, so I, 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 try to check out some of those things. I, I, you know, try to get podcasts, but it's like, you know, you also have a pretty, pretty good list of a repertoire of things that you have to listen to. You need more passive investments to free up more free time to listen to these podcasts. <laughs> exactly. It's a catch 22 a little bit. Yeah, it is. And I was like, and actually I agree with lifestyle investor. I think I was, I don't know what guest I was on the, on, on Justin's podcast, but, uh, I know Justin as well. And I think he is a super, uh, clever human and, uh, he's really created, uh, and, you know, you know, snowballing, uh, the uh, effects of success over and over and over again. So Naval, yeah, I agree. He's kind of like a uh, Yoda almost like, you know, he's just like the, the Jedi master that's giving these things that are not like earth shattering, but you're no, just but like, you're looking at it, you're like, yeah, that totally that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah, <laughs> that totally makes sense. Like, ah, oh, yeah. You know, and it's not like, you know, high level advanced calculus things that uh, I don't even think I could get a C in uh, or maybe you can get a C in and I would fail. So anyway, Hans, this has been a, an extreme pleasure of mine to uh, have you on on the podcast here. How can people reach out and find you? And then also like, if there's an ask of the audience, what you're looking for, is it new investors, LP people, you know, other, you know, recommendations of other podcasts or masterminds or something like that. Is there any kind of ask of the audience and then where can they find you? Um, ask, you know, I, I'm, we, we are always looking for new investors would be happy to add people to our list that are accredited or accredited only. But, uh, you know, we always, cause at some point we're going to start finding, you know, we're going to find a bunch of deals and we're going to need, you know, do more than two deals a year. And so I always want to keep our list of investors growing and, and, uh, bring more people on board that, that think the way we do. Uh, so if you, you know, if you think conservatively and like that, that mentality, then maybe we're, we're, uh, an option for you. I can be reached at H, B as in boy, O as in Oscar, X as in X-ray, H box fboxwilson.com hbox at boxwilson.com and our website is box wilson equity our last two names i mean our last names for each of us so it's real original but 
Well, we'll include those in the show notes. Again, Hans, this has been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the on the Passive Wealth Principles show. Well, thanks for having me on, Jake. Much appreciated. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.